0: Amen. What a blessing it is to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to have a life that is transformed through the gospel. And as we come today, that is why we have gathered. We have gathered to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we have been going through 1 Timothy, and as we have been going for the last six weeks or so, we have been studying the structure and the order of the local church. And so we now are going to move on and begin to study how that takes its place in our lives. We Been sorting out for ourselves the conduct of the Christian and the Christian church that reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture that has been corrupted by sin. From obeying God's clear commands, the Ephesian church, similar to our evangelical church today, indeed was starting to slip and slide away from the gospel as the main message that they had for those who would enter in. Indeed, they were moving away towards all kinds of high-minded tales. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says that men were teaching strange doctrines and myths and endless genealogies, giving rise to all sorts of speculation rather than... Furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. In other words, they were teaching things that were not the gospel. They were having a message that was not the main message of the word of God. Now, Vince Lombardi, uh, the Hall of Fame coach of the Green Bay Packers a few years back, uh, was always focused on the fundamentals of the game of football. In fact, he coached his teams so well on the fundamentals of football that they won numerous championships. And the reason that they won those championships. He always said was because they focused on the fundamentals after one particularly horrendous loss uh, one day. He walked into the locker room to greet his team and he came before those that group of professional football players and he held up before them a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. It's quite a statement to make to professional players. Huh? This is the basics. The very basic thing that you need to start with is understanding this is a football. And Paul says to the church, listen, we don't need to move past anything else. We don't need to run past anything else. We need to start with understanding the gospel. The gospel is the basic unit of the Christian church. Indeed, he warns that the Ephesian church has been moving increasingly away from the fundamentals of the faith. And he is having to reiterate to the church what the church is, who, where they came from, and why it is important. Indeed, if I asked you those questions today, what is the church? Where did it come from? And why is the church important? Is it important for our day? What would your answer be? Well, if we ask that question around the community, no doubt many would respond that the church is nothing more than a cultural community that gathers out more out of tradition than it does out of transformation. They gather out of tradition, not out of the fact that they have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many would say it's a place to go when you have nothing better to do. It's a place to go when you have difficult times. It's a place to go when the sun has kept you inside on a Sunday morning. Or maybe it's a place not to go when, this, uh, when the rain is falling. I don't know. There are many who say that the church is merely these traditional things. It's a place where our births are announced, our marriages are performed, and our, our passing is mourned. It helps us to make it through the course of the day. For many American churchgoers, the church is important only because it meets their personal needs. Only because it takes care of them. In other words, they have only asked, what can the church do for me? Not, what can I do for the church? They shop around for a church that is going to make them feel good week by week where they can come and get a message that will give them a boost to get be able to get through and handle their week. And yet the church is more than that. I love one of the responses uh, to the question, why is the church important? One man said it this way, I believe the church of Jesus Christ is the most important force in the world today. Its task is more important than all the governments and universities of the world combined. There is nothing to compare it with. When he was pressed upon that being a very strong statement and he said, and he was asked, why do you say that? This man responded in this way because the most significant event in human history was when the living God took on human flesh and lived Among us as the Lord Jesus Christ to bear our sins. And since he ascended into heaven, his church now reveals him on earth, even as he revealed God in his flesh when he was on earth. What is the church? Why is it important? Because the church is God's living family here within this world, given to the world to reveal the truthfulness of God and His gospel in the midst of a a lost and dying world, even as Jesus Christ revealed to us God in human flesh when He dwelt among us. Indeed, why is the church important? It is important because we are revealing the transformative gospel to the world who is dying. So that all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ might know life. Life more abundant and life free. Indeed, Jesus said, the thief, and John 10.10 10 said, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life, life more abundantly. What a precious promise. What a great gift. And yet, here is why the church is important. Because the culture that is lost and dying and headed for hell needs the testimony of the gospel. And who has it? You have it. I have it. We have the testimony of our faith, sure and certain. Indeed, why is it important for the, for the church to exist? Because we are given the task within the New Testament of facilitating the flow of the gospel, of fulfilling the Great Commission, and may, through the making of disciples in the context of the local church. But today we are going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16 and we're going to ask ourselves that question, why is the church important? And let's stand now and honor the reading of this God's holy An inspired word. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16, it says this, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I have written these things to you so that you might know how to conduct yourselves in the church, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support. Of the truth, Father, we ask now that we, as we come to your word and study its text, Father, that you, the Lord of the word, would take the word of the Lord and change and transform our hearts. That we would be open to the gospel, that we would hear it clearly, and Father, receive it faithfully and proclaim it always as the only true source of salvation for a sinner to become a saint in the midst of this world. Lord, we ask you now to bless this time. Father, allow us to go out differently than we came in. And Father, as always, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see here in this passage that the church must be founded and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our beliefs and behavior reveal Jesus Christ, even as Christ revealed God in the human flesh. The church must be founded and grounded in nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our beliefs and our behavior might reflect and reveal Jesus Christ, His person and His work to all of those that we come into contact with. Why? So that we might be examples of who God is in the same way that Jesus Christ revealed God when He dwelt among us in human flesh. Indeed, the importance of the church is that we are the revelation of Christ to the world known by our words and our works. We are the revelation of Jesus Christ to our world known by our words and our works. And so we understand that our beliefs and our behaviors and our behavior must line up. We can't separate belief and behavior. The two go hand in hand. And the reality is, when you say that you are a Christian, when you name the name of Christ, When you say that you are something as a son and daughter of God, it is imperative that you then live like it. It is imperative that. That our lives line up with the commands of God and the leadership of His Holy Spirit. Indeed, we are to be founded and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our beliefs and our behavior reveal Christ even as He has revealed God in the human flesh. First, we see in verses 14 and 15, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. Paul is writing this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to command the church to let their belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior impact their behavior within the church and within the culture. He is writing and is saying, listen, if you want to get down to the bottom of it and you want to know why I'm writing you this letter, I'm writing these things to you so that you might know how the belief Belief that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of your life and of the world might impact the behavior that you have each and every day. That's what I'm doing. I'm writing to tell you these things. This is a remarkable truth that many among us need to hear and to wrestle with daily. Indeed, our beliefs should always inform our behavior. Our beliefs should always inform our behavior. And notice, quite frankly, that if our behavior doesn't flow from and follow the commands of God revealed in Scripture, you and I should ask whether we have truly believed in Christ in the first place if we don't have the testimony of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, if we aren't living according to the commands of God, we ought to stop just a minute and say, hey, if my belief behavior doesn't match up to my beliefs, then are they truly my beliefs in the first place? Indeed, we need to ask ourselves these things. If I say I'm a Christian, and yet my life is ruled and reigned by things other than Jesus Christ, who or what is your master? What is the master of your life? Is it your appetites? Is it an appetite for food, or perhaps it's an appetite for alcohol or drugs, sex, power, popularity, wit, winsomeness, wealth, the stuff of this world? What is the Lord of your life this morning, young people? You have spent an entire weekend learning. The Word of God, hearing the Word of God, understanding the gospel. You have been challenged in great and sundry ways all the way through the weekend. But understand this, if you say this weekend that I am a Christian and I'm sold out and I'm living for Jesus, but then you go out there next week and you're drinking and smoking and doing all the things that everybody else is doing and living a life like the world, let me tell you, you ought to hold a mirror up to yourself and say, Am I saved? Did I really mean that I am surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? See, you can't live like the devil and be in the kingdom of God. You are either saved and secured as a son, as a daughter of God, or you are living for yourself and for this world. And we need to be very clear that our belief precedes our behavior. But when we have a belief, it informs our behavior. Parents, the same thing is true for you. You can't come in here and say on Sunday morning, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm good, and then tomorrow somehow divorce it from all of reality as you continue to cheat on your taxes. As you continue to go around and cheat in your business practices. See, you can't divorce the belief in Jesus Christ as Lord from the behavior that you take on a daily basis outside of this building. We need to ask ourselves, who and what is the master of our lives? Is it the things of this world, the food, the sex, the alcohol, the drugs, the power, popularity, wit, winsomeness, and wealth, the stuff here in this world? Or is it God, Savior, Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns in my life? We see also that the belief precedes the behavior, not the opposite. We a lot of times tell people to come to church. Hey, why don't you come to church? First of all, clean yourself up, get yourself looking nice, and then you can come to church. Stop drinking, stop cussing. Listen, how are they going to do that in their own power? You cannot do that except for the Son of God frees you from the power and penalty of sin in this life. Unless the Holy Spirit lives within you, we ought to expect sinners to be sinners every day of the week. We have a message of transformation, a message that can change them. But understand, that message is that God cleans them up, not that they clean themselves up. As we come this morning... We see Paul's discussion concerns the conduct of those who are in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. In other words, the positive instructions of the first three chapters here in First Timothy and the negative warnings of the next three chapters in First Timothy is meant for those who know Jesus Christ personally as their Redeemer, as their Savior and their Lord. They have heard the gospel concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. They have repented of their sins and received by faith God's gift a forgiveness of their sins and a right relationship to Him. As such, we are called sons and daughters of the Most High and we are now heirs with Christ in God's glorious kingdom and we have His Holy Spirit indwelling us so that we increasingly might be conformed to the image of Christ Himself. That is who you are in Christ. But you don't have the power to clean yourself up and make everything okay between you and God in and of yourself. Indeed, it is only through God's redemption and regenerative work in our belief, our behavior must show that He is not just our Savior, but He is our Lord. We are God's family. We are God's house called upon to do God's work. And he is fitting us into the perfect place that he has for us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, chapter two, verses 19 through 22, we see that God is structuring his house out of those who were once far off. It says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints uh, saints and fellow citizens uh, By the work of God, formed and shaped into a beautiful house. But understand, individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit resides in us. And so we are the temple of God in a very real and practical way. David Watson in his book, I Believe in the Church, writes this, it is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. It may be envied for its depths of loving relationships or for its spontaneous joy. It may be hated and persecuted for its revolutionary lifestyle exposing the hollow values and destructive selfishness of society that it seeks to serve, but it certainly cannot be ignored. When God reigns among His people, they become a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let me ask you this morning, how is your life? Is it a city set upon a hill that cannot be hidden? Are you truly a pillar and support of the truth by the life that you live? Are you in God's household? Are you part of His family? Are you an heir to the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are you indeed an heir to the eternal kingdom of God? It is God's house, His family in the midst of a world gone wrong through their redeemed and transformed lives that reveal God's true gospel and Pillar, and are pillars of support to testify to its truthfulness to others. Howard Hendricks says this. He says there are only two types of people within the church of the living God. He said, first of all, there are the pillars that hold it up and support it, and then there are just the caterpillars that crawl in and out. they are the pillars that hold it up and support it. And support the truth and show forth the truth of the gospel that has changed and transformed their lives so that they are no longer simply sinners living in the world, rejecting and refusing to serve God. But now they are saints transformed and changed by the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, are you a pillar, a foundation of truth here within this world and within this community and within this church? are you simply a caterpillar that crawls in and out? It's a major question. The church is the pillar and support of the truth and reveals God's gospel to a world gone wrong. We are the family of God living out a life of behavior that is grounded in the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and He is not just somebody else's Lord. He is our Lord. He is my Lord. He is our King. If we do not make that confession, then we need to ask ourselves again, Has belief taken hold of our lives? Has belief come to rest upon us in such a way that our beliefs inform our behavior? Indeed, it should. But verse 16 shows us the beliefs that that should form our behavior. The beliefs that should form or inform our behavior. And we see there... In verse 16, uh, he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul turns to what unites the church in a common confession of the mystery of godliness. Verse 16 is best understood as a hymn of confession that would have been taken from the early church fathers that would have been sung to teach the deep truths of God's word and work in humanity. Our culture is enamored with good mysteries, aren't we? We love to see stories of who done it and how it happened. I mean, what else can explain the popularity of the shows, the, the series that are on our TVs? In fact, that are running constantly as reruns all across the TV. Tw- shows like 24 and Lost and House and CSI. All of these shows are who done it and, and how did it happen? Everybody loves mysteries. There's something intriguing about something that is hidden and then revealed. But let me ask you for a moment, have you ever walked into the coffee shop down the street and just walked up to somebody and said, hey, you want to know a good mystery? Yeah, I want to know a good mystery. What's the mystery of godliness? Oh, I don't know. They'd probably run you out of there with a broom. I don't don't know what they would do. But what is the mystery of godliness? What is the mystery of godliness? Uh, this is one of the questions that we must answer. Indeed, we must understand we have some great mysteries before us today. Our answer, but our answer must not be found, founded in high-minded tales and speculations, but rather our answers are to be found in the revelation of God. In his Holy Word. So we have the answers of the major mystery for all of humanity revealed within the Bible. And the common confession for all believers is great is the mystery of godliness. And so the question comes to us, well, what is the mystery of godliness? What exactly is that? And we would see throughout the New Testament and Old Testament that the mystery of godliness is the sacred truth of God foretold in the shadows and pictures of the Old Testament that is is then fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the pages of the New Testament. We would see that indeed in the Old Testament, the redemption, the regeneration, the salvation of God is foreshadowed. It is hidden. And yet in the pages of the New Testament, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we now see God's righteousness made known in glorious splendor. On top of that, The mystery of godliness is not just that indeed in Jesus Christ we find salvation and righteousness. But it actually, in the process of salvation, redemption, and regeneration in your heart in my heart, when we see and understand the gospel that it increasingly brings us into conformity with Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ. All of the commands of God were kept perfectly in a way that you and I could never do it, and that pure pure and perfect work is applied to our account when faith awakens our soul, we owed a debt we could not pay and he paid a debt that he did not owe. So godliness is perfectly revealed in the form of Jesus Christ dwelling among men and in surrendering our lives to him by faith. We then begin to be conformed increasingly to his image of godliness as our lives fall in line in obedience to God's word and God's Holy Spirit. As we increasingly bring ourselves under the, under the leadership, under the authority, under obedience to God's word and to God's Holy Spirit, we increasingly are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are increasingly conformed, what? To the God's standard of godliness. The early church hymn here is a brief synopsis of the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is six six lines long, and there are six words with which we can describe it. And first, we start there in verse sixteen at He who was revealed in the flesh. Now, as we come to that line, that is the incarnation. Now, understand, in the best Greek text that we have, the hymn begins with the term host in the Greek, uh, he who, not theos, which is God, in the authorized version of the King James. uh, and, And there's no debate that he who... Uh, of verse 16 is Jesus Christ, who is also God. So it's not a point of contention or argument, but simply to say, listen, the King James here has a translation of a text from a text from a text and understand that he who is the Greek term. And so we understand the incarnation is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existing as God takes on human flesh and comes in the form of man he is revealed in the flesh notice he didn't say he was created in the flesh did he is that what it says created no it says he was revealed In the flesh. Why? Because he was pre-existent. He was before his existence surpassed or superseded his coming into this world. But understand the hymn begins with a confession of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as God within this world. Indeed, this lines up with John's gospel, chapter one in those opening verses, when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word. What was God? The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word actually was God, so Jesus Christ is God, in fact, in verse fourteen of that opening chapter of john's Gospel, it says this, and the Word became flesh, and what dwelt among us lived among us, Philippians chapter two, verses seven and eight, we once again find the truthfulness uh truthfulness of what God has done in this wonderful incarnation when it says uh, Well, let's start in verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the reality. Second person of the Trinity, of the triune God, Jesus Christ, comes in human form. It is indeed humanity, humility in the midst of humanity. It is meekness in the midst of manhood. And here is Jesus Christ stepping out and walking, uh, walking through that area and saying, uh, preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel. Here was Jesus, the invisible God, made visible to human eyes and ears in the likeness of man so that he might live a perfect life and complete the li- complete the commands of the law in a perfect way die in atoning death on our behalf and then be raised in glorious victory and it says Jesus Christ was revealed in human flesh here he is he who was revealed in the flesh so there's incarnation second line is vindication Vindication, which means justified or declared righteous. Indeed, it says he was vindicated in the spirit. When Jesus came to this earth, he did not come as a mighty king, revealing the splendor of God's majestic kingdom. He took on the lowly form of a servant. Thus, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to declare Jesus Christ to be the righteous one, the savior of the world, the messiah of the world. Indeed, the son of the living God. The Holy Spirit had the responsibility of attesting to His Deity. And when Jesus identified himself with sinners by submitting to baptism, the Father himself testified to this when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit testified that it is indeed the Messiah of the world, the Redeemer of the world, when he came like a dove and descended upon Jesus Christ. Indeed, when he went to the extreme humiliation of the cross and bore our sin, being numbered with the transgressors, we see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that indeed He bore the curse that you and I I deserve. We understand in the midst of that testimony in Galatians 3.13 that He took our place as a substitute on the cross of Calvary. And here is the key. He was cursed by God. And yet, the Holy Spirit declared Jesus to be the righteous Son of God. Well, how do you get that? You just said he is cursed by God. Yes, but he is cursed by God in our place for our sins because He is a substitute not for His own sins. And so listen to what Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says when it says, uh, concerning His Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. How was He declared? When God saw fit, to count him not as a common criminal under the curse of God's law, but rather to count him what? As a righteous son of God who had pure and perfectly kept the law of God and yet suffered and died as a substitute for you and I. And so he was vindicated when he was raised from the dead over uh, to have victory over sin, death, and hell. If Jesus had been a sinner, then he would have had to die for his own sins. And God would not have raised him up from the dead but the but the fact that god did raise jesus from the dead proves he is the righteous one he's the messiah he is the savior thirdly there's observation he was seen by angels he was seen by angels. Angels had an interest in God's Savior from his conception to his ascension. An angel announced the conception uh, of Jesus to Mary. Angels proclaimed his birth to the shepherds. Angels ministered to him after his temptation in the midst of the wilderness. And the angels strengthened him in his agony in the garden. Angels proclaimed his resurrection at the tomb. And angels addressed the disciples at Christ's ascension. All of these are testimony that the angels are testifying that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. Here, the reference seems to be to Christ's resurrection, which secured God's ultimate victory over Satan and his demonic host. And indeed, what do we see there, the, there at the tomb? The angels rolling away the stone, right? And then they're waiting and telling and showing and sharing that indeed Jesus is risen in glorious victory. Fourthly, He is proclaimed. He has proclaimed to the nations. After the resurrection, the Lord Jesus made it plain that his disciples were to take this message of salvation and not just to share it with other Jews, but to share it with all the world, with all nations. He says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Listen, there is only one message for every people at every point in time throughout history that they might be saved by God himself and that is the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There is no other hope of salvation. There is no other plan of salvation. I don't care what Rob Bell says in his latest book. I don't care how he says that indeed love will win in the end and ultimately there will be everybody united perfectly and purely there in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. That is not the testimony of the Bible. The testimony of the Bible is sure and certain that if we reject, refuse, and revile God and His perfect and pure Savior, listen, we will be destined for hell itself. The only hope is the proclamation that was made among the nations. The name of Jesus Christ and the work of Him. Indeed, He was also believed on in the world. He was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. And this simply means that God has ordained for every person, and we need to understand uh, that this means that God has ordained that particular way to be the source of salvation, as we just said through the gift of eternal life. And what is it in verse uh, verse sixteen of chapter three of the Gospel of John? It says, "God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life." Listen, he says, you must understand belief belief is the source of salvation. That indeed, not just knowing about the gospel, not just knowing about Jesus, not just sitting in church, not just coming to Sunday school, not just coming on Sunday nights, not just coming on Wednesday nights, that doesn't get you into heaven. Understand, the only source of salvation is for those who would hear the gospel to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. That's the only source of salvation. The fulfillment of this plan was seen in apostles preaching at Pentecost when Peter preached and 3,000 were converted. But the final commencement will be at the throne of Jesus Christ when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will confess together in unison. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Praise be to God. There are some that will believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, he was taken up into glory. This refers to the bodily ascension of the risen Lord Jesus. It is put last out of chronological sequence and yet it is done so because it is the crown of Christ's exaltation. He is seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority in heaven and earth. Resting in His hands as the angels promised one day He will return to earth in the same manner in which He ascended visibly bodily in power and in glory. And even so, we are longing, we are waiting. Every aspect of our lives should be looking forward to the day when those clouds open and forward steps our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we say Amen in the same way He is gone. Now He is coming to receive His bride. His beautiful body, the church. Let me ask you this morning, are we the mystery of godliness to others? Are we a pillar in support of God's true salvation? That's the gospel. He's just walked you through the tenets of the gospel in these six lines, in these six phrases, so that you can understand what you are to believe in. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, you're having problems, and you're going, well, I've just got to suck it up and do better. Listen, the message of the Bible is you don't suck anything up and do better. It is that you surrender yourself fully and ultimately to Jesus Christ as Lord and let His Spirit lead you as you you come under the obedience of God's Word. See, The mystery of godliness refers to the fact that God created man for a perfect and pure relationship with himself. He created us in his image so that we might have a right relationship by obedience to his commands. And yet man rejected and reviled God at every turn and his commands by disobeying God's commands. Ultimately, in the beginning, they rejected God, reviled God, and they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But even today, we are still rejecting and reviling in God each and every day in our lives when we choose to do what we want to do instead of what He wants us to do. When we choose to do what we think will bring pleasure instead of doing what He has told us to do. The penalty for sinful man's ungodliness before a holy and a perfect and pure God is death. And that would have been a horrible story. That would have been a horrible ending to the mystery. But indeed, God had more to the story for God being rich in His mercy because of his great love gave a great twist to the plot he sent Jesus Christ the second person of the triune godhead to suffer and die in sinful man's place and to rise again in victory over sin death and hell so that we might know life and have life more abundantly at calvary Jesus Christ bore the full burden of God's righteousness and righteous wrath in our place so that all that repented of their sin place their faith in him and his efficacious work would then be saved from the power and penalty of sin and they would be united with Him in His glorious and triumphant eternal kingdom. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the fact that God would transform sinners into saints. And I praise God that I am one. Because you know what? In and of myself, I have no right standing before God. I rejected him, I reviled him, I I turned away from him at every point in my life. And yet, his mercy and grace reached out and extended and came and grasped hold of a sinner and said, Son, I want to make you a saint. What a powerful God. And now he has given me the task of going and sharing and showing the work of the Gospel and the transformation and change in my life to others, indeed, we need to ask ourselves: is our hope in the mystery of godliness uh, is, is our hope in the mystery of godliness revealed in Holy Scripture, or is our hope in some self-help psychobabble that will send us no other place than hell itself? Which one are you trusting in today? Trusting in God and His Savior, or are you trusting in your self-help foolishness and your stuff? Why is the church important? Because God has left us here to fulfill the Great Commission so that we might reveal the Son to this world, even as Jesus has revealed God on earth. As the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, we are the current expression of Jesus Christ in the world until He comes again. What a staggering job description. Nothing could be of greater importance. Let me ask you this morning, does your belief reflect itself in your behavior? Does your behavior reflect your belief that Jesus Christ is Lord? In every way, each and every day. Maybe you've been turned off by bad experiences in churches that were institutional where God dwelled in name only, but not in reality. You need to grasp a new vision uh, of what God intends for his church locally expressed by committing yourself to the local church. When we listen, when we are committed to God through the transformational work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, then people who come in and do not know Jesus Christ will look and say, I have truly seen the living God living amongst His people. Adamsville Baptist, let me ask you today. Somebody came in and looked at your life or my life. Would they come up and say, you know what? I've truly seen the living God living in them, living in Him, living in her. If We truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and have surrendered our souls to Him. We ought to be about Fulfilling the great commission, facilitating the flow of the gospel and making disciples each and every day through the ministry he has given us here within his church. Let me challenge you today to make your life not about you, but about him to make sure that you are sharing and showing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same way that Jesus Christ revealed God in human flesh 2,000 years ago. Are you doing it? Parents, how are you doing with your children? Grandparents, how are you doing with your grandchildren? Young men and women, how are you doing with your sisters and brothers? How are you doing with your parents? Are you living out the gospel? Or are you living for yourself today? Father, as we close this morning, may you lead us and guide us in our time of decision. Father. May we see.